from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 13th. Today, impeachment moves to the full house, the rise of unproven stem cell treatments, and the man who brought Sesame Street to life. The Judiciary Committee will come to order a quorum being present, having agreed yesterday to the amendment in the nature of a substitute on articles of impeachment against President Donald J. Trump. This vote today is that final step. We kind of sometimes lose sight as to how historic today was. This now, there's no turning back. Now all members of the House will have to vote on impeachment. I am Rhonda Colvin, and I am the Capitol Hill reporter for video for The Washington Post. Today, the House Judiciary Committee voted on the two articles of impeachment against the president. Uh, We did not expect it to go as fast. We thought there might be some delay tactics by the uh, Republicans, but it was a very quick vote. We will divide the question between the two articles. The question now is on Article 1 of the resolution, impeaching President Donald J. Trump for abusing his powers. The clerk will call the roll. And the Democrats and Republicans voted as expected. It was along party lines. Ms. Lofgren votes aye. Ms. Jackson Lee? Aye. Ms. Jackson Lee votes aye. Mr. Cohen? Aye. Mr. Cohen votes aye. And then the second charge, which is obstruction of Congress, that was brought up for a vote and the same result. Mr. Sensenbrenner? No. Mr. Sensenbrenner votes no. Mr. Shabbat? Mr. Shabbat votes no. Where Republicans voted against it and Democrats for it, and it passed out of committee. Notice is heard. Without objection, the committee is adjourned. I think what stood out to me is if you look at the faces of all members, both Democrats and Republicans on this committee, they looked very weary. They looked uh, very somber. You could tell it was a vote that neither party really wanted to do. And I think that that was really a stunning moment because there has been a lot of divisiveness between uh, the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee and the Democrats on this committee. But this is one time where I've seen at least their facial expressions be all on the same page. And they all looked like they did not want to do this today, but had to. Rhonda Colvin covers Capitol Hill for The Post. The full House of Representatives is expected to vote on the articles of impeachment next week. So Sharon Baker is a retired administrative assistant. She worked for lawyers in a lawyer's office for many decades. And right after she retired, she got hit with this pretty serious diagnosis. Her doctors told her she had COPD, which is an incurable lung disease. It was awful. (laughs) Well, you know, what had happened was I knew I was not breathing well, you know, because I was having trouble getting up and downstairs, and I was always short of breath. And so as soon as I retired, I went to my doctor, and I guess my stats were so low, they wouldn't let me drive. And so they called an ambulance and sent me to the hospital. Well, that was pretty scary, I mean, because it just happened, boom, and then they sent me home with oxygen 24 hours a day. 
So at the hospital, they assign her to this pulmonary specialist, and she started seeing that doctor. One day I was in there, and she knew I lived by myself at that point. And so she says, well, have you looked into assisted living? And I thought, well, is that my solution? Is that my answer, you know? I kind of, like, freaked me out a little, because I had not, definitely. And I went home, and I got on my computer and just started searching COPD, and it was about the first thing that popped up was the Lung Institute, and they had just opened an office in Scottsdale. As someone living with COPD, I know how difficult it can be. Every passing day, it was getting harder for me to breathe. I was becoming less active, and I didn't have a lot of options. I felt like I was getting boxed in. I was waiting for better care or even a ray of hope. There is now an alternative treatment option for chronic lung disease sufferers from the Lung Health Institute. Using a patient's own cells are innovative cellular... And I went, oh my gosh, it must have been an omen from God or something that that would just be there, you know what I mean? I mean, because just the timing. Stem cell therapy gave me the answers I was looking for. And now, I'm back out doing what I love. My name is William One. Uh, for the past year, I've been reporting with my colleague, Lori McGinley on clinics that sell stem cells and other unproven therapies. These are clinics across the country that are promising to treat all sorts of incurable diseases, things like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, or in Sharon Baker's case, the COPD that she had. You're kind of willing to try anything, you know. And I had some retirement money put away. And so they had told me first seventy five hundred. Well, so I scheduled my appointment to go in and get it done. I thought, well, seventy five hundred. I'm just going to go for it. And that was like a lot of my retirement savings. Well, I got to the Scottsdale office, and they take you into another room, which is like the financial person, and it reminded me like of a car deal closing. You know what I mean? And it was like she was trying to upsell me. I mean, originally it was 7500 and then when I got to Scottsdale, it was 12000 And so I thought, well, I'm into it this much. I might as well go the rest of the way if it was going to help me that much. So then what they do is they took my blood, and then they disappear into this room, and they said they whip it. That's what they called it. They whip it. And they come back and put it back in through an IV. And I mean, I only went like two days and then I went to get released and that was it. So I never saw a doctor. The truth is that it's not clear exactly what's in these treatments that are being reintroduced into patients. I'm Lori McGinley. I'm a health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. They made it sound like you were cured, you know. You didn't need oxygen anymore. For a while, she thought, you know, maybe this is working. She even went back for follow-up treatment, and she told herself, you know, maybe I do feel better, but she pretty quickly realized that's not the case. Not only could she not go to the end of her driveway anymore, she couldn't even get to the bathroom without getting short of breath, and she started sleeping on her couch because she couldn't walk up the stairs to her bedroom. And her doctor uh, told her, essentially, that in order to stay alive, to keep breathing, you're going to need a double lung transplant. I mean, to lose that kind of money, I felt really stupid, you know, think I fell for it. So this treatment did not work for her at all. 
She said the only difference between before and after she got the treatment is now she was really, really poor. So, like, what what actually happens at these clinics? What do they do ostensibly to help people? They withdraw blood from a patient, and then they take it into a processing room, and they process it in a centrifuge. We don't know all the details of what exactly that entails. And then they take the product and they infuse it back into the patient intravenously. And what does the centrifuge do? They say that it separates out different materials in the cells to make a concentration of stem cells or other kind of like cellular things that might help. And what the company would say is when they re-inject it into the patient through an IV, it'll find its way on its own into the lungs and find the bad parts of the lungs that are damaged and will heal them. I actually talked to one stem cell researcher in Arizona who went to one of these seminars and heard the whole kind of explanation of how it works. His take on it was he compared it to like taking an injection of metal and injecting it into an iPhone as a way to like fix your iPhone's problems. He was dubious that it would have any effect. Tell me more about this industry and what is happening at these clinics like the one that Sharon Baker went to. This whole industry of commercial stem cell clinics sprang up over the last several years. Initially, these clinics opened in other countries, Mexico, certain parts of Europe and Russia. These are countries that have lax medical regulation compared to the United States. But then in the last five or six years, increasingly, this industry developed in the United States. And now it's thought that there might be a thousand of these kinds of clinics around the country. And so these are clinics that are selling stem cell therapy and other forms of treatment as a legitimate medical treatment. But what they're doing, is it FDA approved? No, it's not FDA approved. And more than that, experts will point out, there hasn't been any rigorous research to show that these treatments work. One of the big battles that has been going on involving these clinics is that they insist that they're not regulated by the FDA, but the FDA disagrees. They say they do have authority over them. In the case of the Lung Institute, which now calls itself the Lung Health Institute, they say that they're now pivoting and that they're starting the process of seeking FDA approval, even though they say they don't really need it. And they're not even using the word stem cells anymore to describe their product. They call it cellular therapy or PRP-PC. So they're rebranding. They are indeed. So how does this company attract customers? We talked to about 15 former employees who said what looks on the outside like a medical operation, on the inside, it's run like a really sophisticated marketing company. They have search ads so that anytime someone Googles COPD and cure, that website would pop up. They came up with all sorts of ways to reach their target audience. Their target demographic is older. These are people who are connected to an oxygen tank and are on that oxygen 24 hours. So what the company would do, for instance, they would look for towns where there's been a snowstorm, where people on oxygen are going to be stuck indoors, um, and they'd target their search ads for those towns. Or they'd buy ads on blackjack, solitaire websites, where, you know, an older person stuck inside is going to be playing for hours. And they talk about it this way in their internal documents. They say they're generating leads. Which sounds kind of like a sales thing, the idea of generating leads. 
they would never call their patient coordinators salespeople, but those leads essentially would be funneled to these patient coordinators who are paid partly on salary, but also on commission. So every single treatment they sell, they make money for those treatments. I talked to a lot of these patient coordinators. A lot of them told me, you know, they now regret kind of the work that they did. Um, some of them said they quit because they just couldn't take the phone calls anymore. Uh, these are former patients calling back saying, you know, you told me I would get better. I paid you so much money and I don't feel anything different. And a few of them said, you know, those calls have really weighed on their conscience since they left. So if these patient coordinators are paid on commission, then isn't there an incentive for them to bring these people in to get this treatment, even if it might not be a thing that will actually help them? Well, when we asked the company about this, they said they don't consider these patient coordinators salespeople. They don't consider the targets they give them to be sales quotas. They said, you know, these coordinators are supposed to make sure patients are satisfied. And so um, even all the marketing strategies we described, they said these are meant to educate patients. But, you know, the former coordinators we talked to were very clear. They said, yes, we were giving monthly quotas. You had to hit 10 sales a month or you'd get in trouble. And on top of that, you'd actually get all sorts of bonuses thrown in as incentives. If you had the most sales of the month, for example, you could get box seats to hockey games or tickets to other events or even like these gift cards. So a lot of incentive. So when you reached out to the company about these practices, what was their response? We actually talked to the company a lot, uh, both while we were reporting the story and since it's come out. Their position is they're offering a treatment to patients who wouldn't otherwise have an option. They point out that these are people who are often really sick even before they get to the Lung Institute. And they said they warn all their patients this treatment might not work for you. Um, but, you know, we, we also talked to a lot of former patients who just feel like this company is taking advantage of desperate people, people who are already suffering a lot, who are very, very sick. So since the print version of our story was published about a week ago, their COO, Ann Miller, actually gave us another long interview, and we asked her about the marketing practices, about a lot of things. So with regards to marketing practices, um, I would say the majority, if not all, uh, healthcare organizations out there market in some way. It's not always that insurance company is just going to refer a patient. So I would say in that sense, with, for instance, us providing online marketing, it's no different than any other healthcare organization doing the exact same thing. And so with that, obviously, it's not that we're targeting specifically patients who are on oxygen. That happens to be the type of person that we offer treatment to. We also asked her about how their patient coordinators are paid partly on commission. And so she responded to that. So, I, I mean, they're, they're compensated as case managers are to make sure that they, you know, stay focused and are able to treat every single patient with um, the utmost um, enthusiasm to make sure that they do a great job and, and hopefully um, are able to, to help them on a, a path towards a solution for them. We actually asked Ann Miller specifically about Sharon Baker's case, who was quoted one price on the phone and then got to the clinic. And she said she was pressured to pay more um, when she came in. And Ann Miller said she can't comment on that specific case because of patient confidentiality. But she said in some cases, patient coordinators might find out more about a person's health and suggest a different treatment plan after that. 
And has anything changed since you guys published this story? So one interesting development was that the day after our story was published, the company laid off 22 people, almost all from their marketing staff. And I asked Anne about this in our interview, whether it's related at all. The layoffs, were they planned long in advance? It's not to do with our article or anything like that. This is like a long-term strategy that was planned? or Yes, it, it, was, it was already planned and just uh, unfortunate timing. The company also connected us with this one patient, Donna Reese. They actually had her waiting on the line when we called Ann Miller. My name is Donna Reese. I reside in Orlando, Florida. I was once retired, and now I am a full-time real estate agent with Century 21. Since my improved health has allowed me to go back to work, I had treatment at the Lung Health Institute while waiting for a double lung transplant, and I'm no longer on oxygen, and I'm feeling like I did years before I was ever diagnosed with a terminal lung disease. After her treatment and making a lot of changes to her lifestyle, you know, exercising, losing weight, eating better, she was actually able to get off oxygen and no longer needed a lung transplant. We talked to several leading pulmonologists and stem cell researchers. We actually showed them all the data that Lung Institute gave us. And they said anecdotes like Donna Reese's, they're exactly why you need rigorous research. So you know what exactly is happening. They said the problem is Lung Institute's never put their treatment through clinical trials that control for the placebo effect, which is something Lung Institute confirmed as well, that they've never done that. Former employees also pointed out, you know, Lung Institute has never been able to hire a pulmonologist who actually specializes in treating and researching lung disease. So if there's not very much scientific evidence at all that these treatments are actually effective, then why isn't this something that the FDA has taken more of an interest in? Well, for several years, the FDA regulation was kind of gray and fuzzy, to be honest, and it allowed this industry to flourish. It's not even clear, I don't think, that the FDA knew how rapidly the industry was expanding in the United States. Certainly, within the last couple of years, several years maybe, the FDA has become much more aware of this and has become very, very concerned about it. In fact, they compare some of these clinics to the old-timey snake oil salesmen who used to peddle elixirs and all kinds of things off the back of wagons. So they've started to bring lawsuits. They've started sending warning letters. They've given very many stern lectures about these things. But the truth is it's very slow going. Every one of these clinics has legal rights, and they can resist in many ways. And then the other thing is the FDA, when they're really being honest about it, they just say they don't have the manpower to be policing against a 1,000 different stem cell clinics in the United States. It was actually really hard to get the FDA to go on record about Lung Institute or any other specific company. Um, but one government official we talked to, he, he compared it to playing whack-a-mole and just described the frustration of it. Several scientists who have been urging FDA and, and the government in general to do something about this for years, they compared it to toothpaste. They said, you know, it's really unclear if they'll ever be able to squeeze it back in. The industry right now, it's booming. It's highly profitable. There's hundreds of these across the country. Very hard to put the cap back on now. So 
What are the consequences for patients who receive stem cell treatments or other unproven cellular therapies? I'd say there's a few different types of consequences. So in the case of Lung Health Institute, there haven't been any physical harms we know of. The biggest consequence is just financial devastation. Like Sharon Baker, the woman we talked to in Phoenix, you know, it's years later now, she's still paying off her credit card bills. She's had to really change her lifestyle because of the debt that she still has. And patients say there's this emotional devastation too. Um, Several of them said they feel like, you know, they were sold this false hope only to have those hopes completely dashed after shelling out thousands of dollars. Is there like a medical harm that can be done from getting these types of unproven treatments? Yes, definitely. We've reported on several other stem cell clinics throughout the year, and in some cases, people have been really seriously injured. There have been a few deaths in the United States and a few abroad. In February, we wrote about a company based in California that's called Livion. That company sold stem cell injections that were derived from umbilical cord blood. What happened last year was some of those injections were contaminated. More than a dozen people got really sick. Some of them were hospitalized for weeks. The CDC issued a countrywide warning, and that product was recalled. Some of the worst injuries we have seen involved a different stem cell clinic in southern Florida. There, several women were blinded when they got stem cell injections in their eyes to deal with macular degeneration. So, yes, there have been some really serious injuries. So what did these other companies say about these accusations from all these former patients and former customers about the ways that they've either been physically hurt by these treatments or the fact that these treatments don't work even though they cost all this money? Well, these clinics say it's really unusual, very, very rare for people to be hurt and that in the vast majority of cases, the people are helped. And they point out that prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs hurt people, too, that they say any medical treatment involves risks. And in fact, they'll point to Tylenol and note that Tylenol can hurt people. But Tylenol is FDA-approved. That's correct. And what the FDA would say is that every medical intervention is a balance of risks and benefits. And the problem with the stem cell treatments is that they haven't shown to have any benefits, at least as far as the FDA can see. So for the patients that you guys spoke with that had negative experiences and were not happy with the treatment that they received, did any of them say whether they're actually pursuing legal action against the company? Uh, Yes. In fact, there is a proposed class action suit against Lung Health Institute. Uh, At this point, there's two named plaintiffs in the suit, and there are more than 30 others who have indicated that they would like to join the suit if it is certified as a class action. I talked to one man in Michigan who wants to join the suit. His name is Tom Johnston, and his wife, Judy Johnston, had severe COPD. Tom said she was so excited to find out about the Lung Health Institute that they jumped in their car, and they drove from Michigan to Tampa so that she could get the treatment. And they spent thousands of dollars for it. But it didn't help her, and eventually she died of her disease. But as she got sicker, her husband says she was haunted by the fact that they had spent so much money on something that turned out to be worthless for her. 
she repeatedly apologized to Tom. And right up until the point when she died, he said she was haunted by it. And Tom told her, we spent the money together. Lori McGinley and William One are science reporters for The Post. You can find their stories on stem cell clinics and other unproven therapies at postreports.com. Now, one more thing. Carol Spinney was the man behind beloved Sesame Street characters like Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. He died this week, just hours before Sesame Street was honored at the Kennedy Center. He was 85 years old. Hello. Hello. <laughs> this is Sally. Hi, Sally. This is Ariana. We don't see him at first. We hear him. He's making noise. He's knocking over garbage cans. He's trying to find the street. He's trying to emerge from an alley. He's making a mess of the whole thing. And there's a little girl on the street, and she's, what, what is this? What is this sound? What, 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 what is going on? What's the racket? And out appears this eight-foot-tall yellow bird. Not just into her consciousness, but to the consciousness of kids in America and around the world. Where's Sally? Big bird. Look down. Look down. Look down. This way. I don't see you. don't see it. I'm Michael Rosenwald. I'm a reporter at The Post, and I host our daily history podcast, Retropod. Carol Spinney didn't just play Big Bird. He played Oscar the Grouch. But only one of those characters was named a living legend by the Smithsonian. And that was Big Bird. Big Bird was known from the streets of the Bronx to the plains of Missouri to China Everywhere around the world, people knew who Big Bird was. It wasn't just because he was a giant eight-foot yellow bird. It was because he represented to kids everything about themselves that they were struggling with, whether it be learning the ABCs, riding a bike or being coordinated or, or playing outside. Today we are going to walk all the way around the block. Knocking things over. Hmm. Sometimes I'm a little clumsy and I do something that I'm not very proud of. I don't get too upset. Being just what kids are, just kind of a mess sometimes. And Big Bird, you know, he was he was them. I grew up watching Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch, and I have to say that, you know, I found Oscar the Grouch really funny. But watching Big Bird growing up, I used to imagine that Big Bird could actually see me laughing at him in a way that like makes no sense now as a full-grown adult. But when you're a kid and you're watching this goofy Big Bird, you know, singing funny songs and knocking things over, like you're laughing and you're laughing really, really hard. And you really think Big Bird can see me laughing and we're having this laugh together. 
When Spinney died, I started to imagine what his funeral would be like because I remembered what Jim Henson's funeral was like. Henson was the creator of The Muppets and Sesame Street and so many other wonderful characters for children. And Carol Spinney, in his eight-foot-tall Big Bird puppet costume, took the stage to sing the song that Jim Henson, as Kermit the Frog, had sang so many times. It's not easy being green. It's not that easy being green Having to spend the day the color of the leaves When I think it could be nicer There was a sense of loss, a sense of deep loss, not just to him, but to kids all over the world. The same kind of loss the world is experiencing now, now that Spinney's not in it anymore. When green is all there is to be It could make you wonder Michael Rosenwald is host of the Post History podcast Retropod. I am green and it'll do fine. It's beautiful and I think it's what I want to be. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Rennie Svernovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post-director of audio is Jess Stahl. And our senior producer is Matt Collette. Today is his last day at the Washington Post. Levels, 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 levels. Hi, 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 hi. It's Matt. I'm at the Iowa State Fair. I'm going to try to talk to people who won blue ribbons. You may not recognize Matt's voice, but you definitely know his work. He has made our podcast better every single day. So from all of us here at Post Reports, a heartfelt thank you. Matt, we'll miss you much. Thank you, Matt. Good luck in your new job. We are going to miss you so much. Matt, thank you so much. I'm not crying. Bye, Matt. I'm going to miss you. I want to flight to LA right now, and I'm not landing for another three hours, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for everything you've done for this team. Shukran, Matt. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.